Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. And today, what else can we reflect on again, I'm afraid, but Brexit? Because so many themes erupt from Brexit. People's hearts might sink when the word is mentioned, but it invites reflections on many other things. So, for example, over the last few days, we've had some MPs calling for a government of national unity to sort out the chaos of Parliament, that parliamentary paralysis that I reflected on uh, last week. There won't be a government of national unity, but it's a rich theme and you can see why some MPs so desperate for a reasoned route out of this nightmare might think that the coming together of soft Brexiteers or Remainers and pragmatic Brexiteers would be the solution, rather like 1940 and the Second World War. It's not the solution, and it won't happen. It's not the solution because there is no way the leadership of either of the two bigger parties will stand aside, which is what would have to happen, for both sides to come together with new leaders to sort this crisis out. There is no route towards a government of national unity. There was, sort of, in May 1940, during that famous, or after that famous, parliamentary debate on the Norway debacle, uh, when Chamberlain went and Churchill came in and Clem Attlee became his deputy prime minister. There is no equivalent sequence here, although the crisis is deadly serious. It's also not the solution, because... This has been an issue that raises many issues, some of them ideological, and the idea that there is a coming together of people from different sides at a moment of heightened ideological divisions is, I think, a kind of fantasy and and would be almost part of the whole Brexit delusion. Uh, There are so many kind of illusory dimensions to Brexit, but a kind of neat consensus coming out of nowhere amidst this turbulent chaos would itself, I think, be a distortion. Theresa May is becoming a figure of such endurance, it's almost a sort of Monty Python sketch where someone is kind of battering her to bits. One of those Terry Gilliam cartoons perhaps where someone has been kind of nearly destroyed then up they pop again as if everything is completely normal. Um, It's almost uh, getting to the point now where even a political addict like myself is getting bored with Theresa May popping up again and carrying on as if everything is normal. Bizarrely I think she has one strength in this current situation. Obviously not the composition of the House of Commons, which is the fault partly of her decision to call the election, or not the decision actually, the way she fought and then lost the election. And also underlying forces, which shouldn't be ignored, that uh, led to some moving towards Corbyn's Labour Party. She has the nightmare of dealing with the European Union and the negotiation to come. That's not entirely her fault. And of course she has Brexit overwhelming her leadership and that is the fault of her predecessor. Indeed, that great 
political thinker Danny Dyer did kind of sum up things when he said, where is that twat? Where is that twat, Cameron? And David Cameron, I think, although I understand why he called that referendum, leadership is tough, and when MPs are defecting to another party, in his case UKIP, and his supporters, voters, are threatening to do so, it's very tempting to pull a trick out of the hat, which you think might change things. And that's what he did. It was a catastrophe. And he will try and rationalise, I think, in his memoir, much delayed memoir, that the fact that he lost the referendum showed he was right to call it. A kind of contorted logic, which again I can follow, but is wholly unconvincing. And he, I said last week, there were some of the other things that the coalition did which needs revisiting. It was not a period of glorious, sunny, stable government as uh, some revisionists have it. Uh, but uh, he has a lot to answer for. Nonetheless, she has been in charge since Brexit took shape. And the fact that it remains so utterly shapeless is partly down to Theresa May. But there she is. She keeps on winning votes. We keep on saying this is the killer vote. And then she emerges winning this vote. I'm told her big obsessive priority is not to lose key votes in the House of Commons. She hasn't lost key votes, whatever shenanigans have gone on so far to prevent that from happening. But she has one ace. And although that ace is the cause of many of her difficulties in recent days, it remains, it's a very battered, battered ace. It's still there. She has a plan. It might be a silly plan. Indeed, the plan is in many ways silly. The white paper, the so-called Chequers Agreement, will not be the form that Brexit takes if Brexit takes place in any form. But at least she now has the ammunition of a shape, her own chosen shape in the form of that white paper. And as I say, it's a silly shape, but it's a shape nonetheless. Up until now, or until that moment, remember, she was leading in a vacuum where no one quite knew what she planned to do. There were some advantages to her in that, in that both sides assumed she was basically on their side, both sides of the internal Tory divide. But Europe had no clue what was happening vis-a-vis -vis Brexit, nor did the country, nor did business leaders trying to plan ahead. She now has a plan, a battered shield that she holds up as she tries to advance. And therefore, a negotiation can begin this summer. It's already sort of tentatively started. The negotiation will be extraordinary. I think it will be worth watching every twist and turn of that too. But at least she's got something. Listening to Boris Johnson's resignation statement, I could discern no credible plan as an alternative beyond, in effect, heading towards no deal. There was no serious, detailed proposition that he advanced that the European Union would even know how to begin negotiating. Even those of us who say this is getting so nightmarish, a referendum might be the only way out of it, we, if we are honest, haven't got a detailed plan. 
We do not yet specify quite how a referendum would work or when or what the questions should be. Indeed, there are differences between those of us who think now that this might be the only way through as to what the questions should be. I agree with Justine Greening that you have to ask three, in fact three at the very least, in a two-staged referendum. You have to put, assuming it exists, May's plan. You have to put no deal. You can't exclude that as an option for voters. And then you have to put staying in the European Union. I don't think the European Union or May's plan would have any legitimacy as a referendum without no deal being included as well. So we haven't yet got a detailed plan. Labour hasn't got a detailed plan. In fairness to Labour, it's got a more detailed plan than the media allows. The current kind of media orthodoxy is, oh, well, Labour's basically in the same position as the government. If any of you heard Keir Starmer's detailed interview with me from the Politics Festival, which I put on this podcast, you will know that that's not the case. There are huge gaps in Labour's message, but its support for the or a customs union and close to almost exact alignment with the single market is puts it in a very different place from the government. And although there are internal differences, as we saw this week with uh, Labour MPs in effect keeping May's government alive, the divisions over those two fundamental areas are not that great. But there are these big gaps. She has a plan. Boris Johnson has no plan. And nor does Labour fully, nor do the People's Vote campaigners either, in quite the same way. She would have had a better plan if, at the beginning, she had decided to take all this on when she was strong. It's very interesting with Prime Ministers. I'm writing a book about Prime Ministers, and they rarely know when they are strong and when they are weak. Obviously, when they are strong, there's huge amounts of political space for them to use. And when they are weak, there's very little. Of all the modern prime ministers, the only one, I think by instinct, who recognised the amount of political space available to them on the political stage was Margaret Thatcher. She had a near genius for recognising how far she could go at any given time. So early on in her leadership, while many of her instincts publicly expressed were radical, she moved relatively cautiously with a shadow cabinet and then a government, many of whose senior members opposed those radical instincts. When Labour split, uh, with the SDP forming a threat to Labour, She knew that she had the space, that Labour couldn't win an election when two parties were fighting on the same terrain. And then she went for it. Theresa May had much more space than she realised at the beginning of her premiership. She won a leadership contest, the entire Tory membership virtually, and most MPs were relieved to see her there. The only ones who were furious were the sort of Cameroonian Osbornites who she sacked. But the voters approved And that in itself gave her an authority, those opinion polls putting her 20 points ahead. And at that point, she should have said, we are going to sort out where we stand on this. And until we do, I won't trigger Article 50. When we do, I will trigger it. And the route towards the exit, which some of you have dreamed of, will happen. 
but it will be a route on my terms. And you watch them in the context when she was mighty, rallying round and just saying, at least we have a Brexit here under a strong leader. Of course, there would have been huge problems, but not anywhere near on this scale. Now, without a majority, with MPs turning on her, she tries to be strong when she has no space on the stage. She is doggedly, stubbornly pursuing this plan. So it would have been much better if she had done it from her perspective much earlier on and with a better plan. She would have had the space to have a less silly plan at the beginning. But she's got it. And I think, in a way, that gives her a bit more staying power. There will be a negotiation this summer over her plan unless a leadership contest erupts in the middle of it. Even if it does, I assume she would stand, and her plan would be the subject of continued, if bizarre, negotiation with the European Union. She's a bit like Jim Callaghan, the Prime Minister in the mid-1970s. I keep on reading and hearing, this is wholly unprecedented, this chaos, this nightmare. It's not. In the 1970s, the British economy was heading for a cliff, Callaghan was leading a deeply divided Labour cabinet with more formidable figures than May faces, and his party was split as well. I'm very grateful to Tim Bale, the academic and author, who reminded me, I did a piece about Harold Wilson for the New European the other day, about how that wily figure would have dealt brilliantly, I suspect, with the impossible challenges of Brexit. He would have kept all options open and uh, navigated a way round without provoking cabinet resignations. Uh, and Callaghan, when he faced the IMF crisis, had a cabinet split three ways with formidable advocates in each camp. Tony Benn, with his alternative economic strategy. Tony Crossland, uh, continuing to base his ideas around his kind of early, late kind of 1950s, early 60s uh, manifestos. And then Callaghan and his Chancellor, Dennis Healy, arguing for deep spending cuts to uh, get the loan they needed from the International Monetary Fund. And Callaghan took the cabinet on. They were each allowed to debate to oblivion. They were in cabinet meetings lasting days, much mocked and derided by Tony Blair in his era, but actually it was powerful. Callaghan and Healy prevailed. No one resigned from that cabinet. They got the loan, and although all hell was to break loose later, there were not this these seismic cabinet ruptions as there has been in recent times. The summer, I can tell you, won't make any difference. There's always talk at the end of a torrid July that uh, things might have calmed down by September when MPs return. Things will have intensified. They always do. I remember in the mid-1990s, John Major's number 10 used to brief, and I think John Major used to say it as well at the sort of lobby drinks party at the end of the summer term, that... Um, Oh, these hot July nights, it's, it encourages political turbulence and mischief. It'll be better in September. And September became a deeper form of political hell for John Major when they all got back. And it will be. 
August, I think, will be quite problematic. Uh, there's a kind of newspapers have pages to fill and bulletins have to be broadcast and all the uh, radio outlets are still in place, even if the Sunday TV programs are off air. And I think they will be filled with the noise of Tory discontent. What's going to happen in the end this autumn? I don't know. Nobody knows. Theresa May doesn't know. Barnier doesn't know. Donald Trump doesn't know. Uh, maybe he does. He's a genius. But um, as I explained last week, there won't be an election. Tory MPs will not vote for an election and the fixed-term parliament. That means that a parliament can only end when a government's doing quite well and is popular in the polls, when we don't need an election. But that's the only circumstance in which a governing party would call an election. That's driving everybody crazy uh, and will continue to do so while the end is so unclear. You can't leave, I don't know, these Scandinavian film noirs on episode 18 with four to go and you've no idea what's going to happen. So it's going to just carry on driving us all crazy. Where is that? Where is that twat camera? He's got a lot to answer for, that twat camera. Where is he? Where is he? It's driving us all completely bonkers. And one of the institutions that's getting some sticks, some of it deserved, I think, is uh, the BBC. And it's it's getting into the United States as well. Nick Cohen wrote a piece for the, I think, the New Yorker or the New York Review of Books about the BBC's timid approach to issues around the Brexiteers and the reporting of um, uh, some of the uh, spending implications of the Brexit campaign, uh, relations with Russia and so on. And there has been also a lot of stuff about what is balance in this debate and what the BBC needs to really think deeply about these things. I know they have convinced themselves they have done, but um, it's the same with the whole Cliff Richard Fiorori sending helicopters above Cliff Richard and all the rest of it. They are all symptoms, I think, of shallow decision, shallow thinking amongst many disparate editorial figures. The BBC is not one collective by any means. It'd be probably better if there was one strong leader. But I've seen a few signs of really deep thinking about what it is to be a publicly funded and therefore constrained news organisation in these stormy times. Uh, there was, in the John Burt era, and although it was controversial, there was a sense of purpose and mission, his famous mission to explain, which incidentally would be a very good mission now for the BBC. Anyway, here am I. This is my mission, whatever they're up to. And I'm going to be... Uh, explaining that's my mission at the edinburgh festival this summer so i hope some of you can come along to that and do subscribe to the podcast the mps are on holiday next week make absolutely no difference this will be going on and on i mean this podcast not brexit more brexit will be going on and on as well thanks for listening today see you next week and do come along to rock and roll politics live at the edinburgh festival tickets available on the edinburgh festival fringe website thanks so much for listening bye